Welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. In light of COVID-19, our regularly scheduled 9 and 11 a.m. Sunday services are currently suspended. During this time, we will live stream our 11 a.m. Sunday morning service and plan to offer other online connection points throughout the week. You can find us on Facebook or visit www.rockpoint.org for more information, including important schedule updates. We want to welcome you to uh, our gathering here today. And um, before we get into what we're going to look at here today, in the midst of our greeting, we also have a, uh, a goodbye. And I guess very appropriate that it's on this Memorial Day weekend that we would recognize the passing of a great partner and um, a great thinker and a great warrior for the faith. Ravi Zacharias uh, passed away uh, just recently here this past week. Um, he was the uh, founder and head of Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, probably the foremost apologetics um, and thinker of Christianity in recent years. I would put him on the same order as I would Billy Graham. And we have been partnered with that ministry for a number of years and have some close connections, relationships. We were supposed to have three of those speakers actually this summer. We're still sorting what that is and what's happening there. I want to just reference um, something that he said. Um, he referenced at the beginning of what he was doing back in the 80s. No one was reaching out to the thinker, to the questioner. He said, in certain strands of evangelicalism, we sometimes think it is necessary to so humiliate someone of a different worldview that we think unless we destroy everything he holds valuable, we cannot preach to him the gospel of Christ. What I'm saying is this, when you are trying to reach someone, please be sensitive to what he holds valuable. He said this in a gathering of evangelists that uh, um, Billy Graham had gathered, I think, in Amsterdam at the time, and there was a standing ovation in response to this out of respecting individuals' worldviews, even as we share Christ with them. Um, he made the statement that uh, he saw the objections and questions of others not as something to be rebuffed, but as a cry of the heart that had to be answered. People weren't logical problems waiting to be solved. They were, pro they were people who needed the person of Christ. So we um, recognize the passing of Ravi. Uh, our regards go out to all those who will minister with him, particularly to our good friend Abdu, uh, Murray, and Nicole, um, as well as so many others that we're in relationship with there. Um, for just a moment, Father, I just pray right now that you would minister your grace to all those who have stood with Ravi over the years and who uh, now are responsible for carrying on this ministry. We lift up Abdu to you and uh, Alicia and so many of other friends, Lord God, that are part of this ministry right now, Stuart and the rest. We just ask God that your blessing and your guidance and your wisdom, along with the comfort of your Holy Spirit in this time of grief, would be with them. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been examining um, something entitled called Songs of the Night, kind of a study of the book of Psalms. And uh, while a lot of these are, are ones that are written in the time of despair or difficulty, they are also always worth the recognition of God's grace and provision. And today, I want to walk you through real quickly uh, the 42nd Psalm. And as I set this up for you, I, I want to preface this first with this. Right at the beginning of man's creation, God makes it clear in Genesis chapter 2 that it is not good for man to be alone. 
We were designed for fellowship. We were designed first for fellowship with God, but second for fellowship with one another. We were designed for that. When we do not have that fellowship, when we operate in isolation, it is a damaging thing to us emotionally, physically, and spiritually. Um, But at the same time, Jesus, in response to a temptation that Satan throws at him in Matthew chapter 4, says, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We long for the time when we are going to be able to fellowship together in person here. And we're going to be discussing that, and I'll be sharing some things with you um, soon in regards to what we have been doing and what we are about to be doing. But as much as we long for that and, and have the sense of loss of that, there should be something that should be first and foremost for us. In the season that you've had and that I've had, as we've been sequestered and we feel that loss of physical contact, it would have been a great time and is still a good time for a sharpening of our awareness of God's presence. This psalm, the 42nd, a lot of history around this, and it starts off with this, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I, when can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night. Well, people say to me all day long, where is your God? Let's start with just this passage here to begin with. Um, From what I understand, uh, obviously, we as humans need food and water to survive. About 60%, though, of our body, at least, is made up of water. And a human can go for about three weeks uh, without food, but will only last about three or four days without water. There's this need for us to be refreshed, and a lot of the current health things are suggesting that we should be, you know, drinking, you know, gallons of water all day long. It's a healthy thing. It's a needful thing. Now, imagine that taken away for a moment, and what the psalmist is evoking here is an image of of a deer that is um, either in a time of drought or more probable, because you'll understand as we go along with this, that the deer is being pursued by a hunter. And in the pursuit, as he's running away and trying to save his life, that he's exhausted, that, that, that there's just that need for hydration. And so the imagery that he's offering as the deer is panting for streams of water, so my soul longs for you, God. My soul thirsts for you. Jesus used oftentimes the idea of, of him as the living water, as that basic necessity for life, that thing that, that hydrates you. And sometimes when you're completely exhausted, but you get a, a shot of water, it revives you. You can almost feel your cells kind of soaking in and expanding. My soul thirsts for God. When can I go and meet with God? Um, the writers of this were been people called the sons of Korah, and we'll talk about them at a later time. Very interesting, really interesting people. But they were ones who would have served in the temple, and there would have been times when they would have formally uh, been responsible for showing there. So when can I go and meet with God? Another translation says, when shall I come and appear before God? When is my allotted time? When am I going to have that opportunity again? There's been some deep loss in this individual's part. As he goes on and says, my tears have been my food day and night. Um, there's this sense of, of sorrow, the sense of lack and loss. And for these sons of, of Korah, these individuals that were um, away from where it was, there's a sense of grief, so much so that the appetite was gone. You ever had that where you're just so 
upset, so disturbed, so distraught that you just can't eat. And in this case, this is this with these people, and they're saying that, that their tears basically are their food at that time. There's a sense of loss. There's a sense of abandonment from God. They've got someone here who's pounding on them and saying, where is your God? And they're not being atheistic. They're saying, you know, he obviously doesn't seem to care about you. There's a sense of abandonment that has been offered. A lot of us in this season of time, especially sequestered away, have maybe felt like you've been abandoned by God. We've tried to say repeatedly, he sees you where you are. But in this case, this had gotten this writer depressed and, and dark. There's this sense of grief and the sense of loss and a sense of abandonment. He starts to remember things. And, and it goes on in this next section of Scripture that says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the Mighty One with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Now this Scripture really hits home, at least for me and I know for a number of us who are processing not being gathered in the house of God together. We had one of our people who showed at the door here today with the hopes that, that we would be actually gathering on site and uh, as with many of you, they, they left their tithe envelope here. You guys have been so incredibly faithful during this whole season of time. But I could see in their eyes, the same as has been in many of ours, what is referenced in this passage. You know, I remember as I'm pouring out my soul and my, my sense of loss, how I used to go to the house of God, how I used to gather on a Sunday or at different times and in worship. In this case, they're thinking of the temple but for us, it means this place of fellowship. And uh, another translation says, For I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God. And a lot of us are longing for that time again. We remember those happier times. But in this case, those happier times were making the psalmist even more sad as he thought of those times of joyful worship and, and exaltation. And he says, with shouts of joy and praise amongst the festive throng. And so he's talking about the festivals. And so he's particularly remembering those high points of Passover or the Feast of Tabernacles, or in our case recently, Easter. You know, we, we, we celebrated Easter separated. And for some of us, I think we would have remembered the time when we would have been packed to the walls with a thousand people on the location here and, and the joy of, of praising God together and, and hugging one another and caring for one another and providing for one another. This is the same thing that the psalmist is writing. He's saying, I long for that time when I could be back in the presence of God, in his temple, in his house, with others worshiping at Easter, at Christmas, at all those holidays, maybe at Memorial Day, though I gather many of you are probably going to be viewing this a little bit later because you ran away up north. I know there was a long line at Zilwaukee Bridge. And that's all right. But a number of you are here right now in this specific moment of time. And we share this, even while separate. And so he's marking this and he's remembering this. This next section, he's speaking to his own soul. And he's addressing himself. If you ever get into self-talk, actually, it's not a bad thing to to speak to yourself and direct things to yourself. It's a way of processing things. And so in this passage, verse 5, he says, Why, my soul, are you downcast? He begins to address himself. Why so disturbed within me? What's going on? Then he says, Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my salvation, my Savior, rather, and my God. He didn't surrender 
to his feelings of spiritual depression and discouragement. There's been more depression probably in this season of time than practically any other time in this nation. Suicides on the increase, anxieties, all those things. And he doesn't surrender to that. He's feeling the same thing. But instead, he actually begins to address himself and, and speak to himself and say, why are you feeling this? What is going on? Why so disturbed? Well, don't just stay there. He says, hope in God. He'll come through again. He has in the past, and he will again. It's a long way from the surrender that often traps our discouraged and, and spiritually depressed spirit. He didn't say, you know, my soul is cast down and, and that's how it is and there's nothing I can do about it and, and I'll just bang on through. There were some really valid reasons for why he had discouragement and I think that it's not really biblical to deny the reality that surrounds us and just be positive thinking our way through it. That kind of magical thinking is not biblical. There were valid reasons, but there are also many more reasons for hope. There's a lot of things that bothered this guy right now who's writing. He had a distance from home. We're kind of sick at being at home, but this person was away from home. They were outside Jerusalem, and they were far from the house of God. Evidently, there were some unbelievers that were taunting him. He had memories of better days, and, and when we have those memories of better days, we, we sometimes are not in the present and we long for what seemed to be a better time. There was the absence of the thrill of, of, the, of worship and of being present in a room together. There were all these trials of life, and on top of it, God seemed to be very slow in response to what this writer's need was. But still, he's saying, those are not good enough reasons to be cast down when I think of the greatness of God and the help of God. The result of all this was not the deadening of his sense of sorrow, but rather setting it in a proper relationship to God, getting it in a proper perspective. We have whatever it is that's taking us down. We can't deny that it exists. That's just lacking reality. But we can put it in proper perspective. We don't just have to let these things wash over us. We can take charge of our own spirit and address it and speak to it. And so he says, I'm going to have hope in God. I will yet praise him. He didn't feel filled with praise at the moment, but he was confident that if he could direct his hope in God, that the praise would come forward. He's worthy of my hope. He's proven himself in the past, and so I'm going to still praise him. One writer said, hope is like the sun, which as we journey towards it, casts the shadow of our burden behind us, so that the closer we get, the more the burden falls away. There's an interesting line that he uses here um, as he's addressing here. He's saying, at the end, my Savior and my God. In the Hebrew, though, that translations for the salvations of his face. In other words, this writer was seeking God's face in the midst of everything that was going on. He understood that the answers were not to be found within him, even though he's addressing his own spirit. It wasn't just self-talk or positive thinking. The answers were within himself. They were in God. He didn't look just within, but he looked up. And so he's seeking the face of God. And for those of you who have been around our fellowship, we've talked about this before. They're seeking the hand of God, what he can give us, what he can provide for us. 
His blessings. And to be honest, many believers today pursue the hand of God, what they can receive from Him by living according to His guidance and, and direction or His blessings or anything of that nature. But there's a difference between that and seeking His face. I would argue that the prodigal son sought the hand of his father, what he could get from him, what he could receive from him, and then found himself in this far-off country destitute when it all ran away. And then something switched in his brain, and it wasn't just for what he would receive, but there was something about seeking the face of his father that changed something in that process in his pursuit of God and his pursuit of his father. During this season, don't just look for the blessings, but this writer, he's looking for the salvation that is found in the face of God. He wasn't just looking within, but he was rather looking up. The psalm goes on, and, and now there's a, a kind of a prayer from this distant place. And he says in verse 6, My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Okay, so the guy's kind of getting a detached statement of saying, kind of a report to God almost. My, my soul is downcast. I'm not doing so great, God, um, but I remember you. And it's here that it makes it clear that he's far from Jerusalem and it's temple worship. And that's one of the reasons why he feels himself cut off from God. This would have been before there was an awareness or, or the presentation of God's Holy Spirit that can make himself known and empower the believer wherever they are. And, and there was this distinct feeling like you had to be in Jerusalem, in the temple, and in a lot of time to engage God. And some of you may still feel that way, that somehow you need to be in this sanctuary, in this place, before you can feel God's presence. And I would not minimize our gathering together at all, or the significant importance of us being together in worship. And, and that's something that you should long for. We're not really complete until we're worshiping as part of a body. But God's presence is available anywhere and at any time. This writer is saying, I'm outside, I'm distant. Uh, kind of the reverse of what we're dealing with, like I said. We're dealing with the lockdown. He was feel, dealing with a lockout. He was, he was gone from his home. And then this passage has always captured me. And in verses 7 and 8, it says, Deep calls to deep. In the roar of your waterfalls, all your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day the Lord directs his love at night. At night, his song is with me. That's why I've called the songs in the night. A prayer to the God of my life. The God of my life. Deep calls to deep. Maybe he saw a waterfall while he was out in the far country. Um, maybe that was what was stirring in him. But either way, he knew that he was in deep trouble on the outside and he was on deep trouble on the inside. And these two depths seemed to collide in him and, and was pushing him even deeper still. It's this very powerful, poetic expression of despair and at the same time communion. So he's sitting here and saying, I, I hear the constant noise of waterfalls. It never stops. I fell from a previous height. I plunged down quickly and was taken down deep. I feel buried under all this. I feel like I'm drowning in what is taking place around me. Years ago, when I was over in uh, Hawaii visiting my my parents who've lived there for the last 20 years or so. I, I thought surfing would be a fun thing and I heard you, you body surfed first and I don't think I quite got the principle down. And, and so I was catching the waves as they were coming in. I was stretching out and I was trying to, to ride with them. And I, 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 a couple times it was really cool and then something went wrong and this was at a, a very dangerous beach 
and uh, um, I, I caught the wave. And as it caught me, it took me down deep and then caught my head on the bottom of the water. And I bent in like this. And I, I, I could know in a moment's time that I was this close to losing all my functions and having my neck snapped. I was down deep. The water was so powerful. I could not do I'm a strong swimmer. I couldn't do anything. I was trapped in that moment of time. And that unrelenting pressure, and I, I still think it's only God's grace that didn't stop me from, from being paralyzed for the remainder of my life. I surfaced um, from that, and then I, I decided that coffee drinking was risky enough, and I would go out and do that from now on. Um, this writer is evoking some of those same things. Something had driven him down deep. It had trapped him. He was feeling immersed, and a deep need calls for a deep remedy. And he's sitting here and saying in part, I am deep in my situation and circumstances, but you are also, you're like right there as well. As deep as I am, you're even deeper still. There's something that's connecting on this, and, and you've measured all this. You've, you know where I'm at. There's a divine redemption, one writer says, in response to our deep need. And so out of the depths of our need are the depths of God's grace. And somehow these two depths meet in this moment. There's some kind of communion that takes place in this moment of sorrow that is unlike any other communion at the heights of our joy and exaltation. There's something at the depths of our pain and our brokenness and our sense of being drowned and trapped and depressed that in that moment if we address our soul and speak to God that he meets us in that moment of time. All your waves and breakers are swept over me. Then it goes on and says, by day the Lord directs, another phrase says, commands his love. He commands his love to me. And at night his song is with me. And then he closes by saying a prayer to the God of my life, not unto the God of his death, but to the God of my life. So wherever he's at in this brokenness and his depths, he's recognizing that God's life-giving grace is deeply communicating with him as this deep issue is being responded to by the deep grace of God. He goes on and it even gets more detailed in his discouragement in verses 9 and 10. And it seems strange at first because he says this, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Now the reason why I say this is a little strange because there's a, like a, a contradiction in this line. The psalmist has the confidence to call God his rock, his place of security, stability, and strength. And at the same time, he honestly brings out his emotions. Why have you forgotten me? Why am I feeling desolate right now? There's a confidence in God while still expressing his sense of loss. There's nothing wrong with sharing honestly with God where you're at. Over and over again in Psalms, we see this happening. We don't see this magical thinking, this positive thinking that you're being taught today, this name it and claim it gospel that's out there. Instead, there's a recognition of the deep pain but there's also a recognition of God being something that can overcome that. He goes on to talk about his mourning and loss, and then this line might resonate with you, oppressed by the enemy. 
there's this constant sense of oppression, this thing that plays in the ear, whether it's a verbalness or within our own head, where is God in all this? All the virus, all the issues we dealt, the job loss, the conflicts that we're having in our families as the monsters on Maple Street come out, all the different conflicts, the liquor stores are open, but the 12-step programs are closed and inaccessible. So we deal with our addictions and our demons and all the different things we have and all the loss that we seem to incur and there's something that whispers and taunts us and said, where is God in all this? The writer doesn't stop there though. He continues on and he returns to this confident challenge both to himself and this focus upon God. He says again in verse 11 here now, why my soul are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. He challenges his own sense of discouragement. Why are you downcast, soul? Why are you so disturbed and broken? And he says to himself, put your hope in God. And that last line, my Savior and my God, has the same um, referencing of I'll find my salvation in the face of God. Now, that's the end of the psalm. Where is it? You see, in the Hebrew Bible, this psalm is actually um, combined with what we have in our Bible as Psalm 43. They're read as one continuous psalm. And there seems to be some history that is thought behind this. That this psalm we just examined, the 42nd, and then combined with the 43rd, is a statement of the sons of Korah these temple worshipers and, and leaders who would have gone with David when he was being expelled from Jerusalem by his, the rebellion of his son Absalom. It would have been a time when David was running hard from someone who was trying to kill him. That David is that deer panting for water, trying to find a place of refuge, a rock of, 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 of safety as he's running. They're expelled. They're no longer part of Jerusalem and they're feeling the sense of loss. We feel sick about being at home. These people were outside and were instead longing not just for home. They were longing for fellowship with other believers. But more deeply and more profound, they were longing for fellowship with God. And so here's the 43rd Psalm as a continuation of the 42nd. It's not going to show on your screen. Just listen to me a minute and see if you can't hear David's voice. Vindicate me, my God, and plead my cause against an unfaithful nation. Rescue me from those who are deceitful and wicked. You are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Send me your light and your faithful care. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell, to your temple. Then I will go to the altar of God. To God, my joy and my delight, and I'll praise you with a lyre and oh God, my God. And then see the linkage. Last verse. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Ultimately, David defeats Absalom and he's restored to the kingdom again. He enters back into Jerusalem to the sounds of cheers. 
And once again, they gather as a people to worship God and to honor Him. And the writer is vindicated. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior, my God. I will yet seek His face, and He will bring salvation to me. We have felt caged in during this time, sick of our home, but at least safe within that confine. David was an animal being hunted, a deer thirsting. And he uses that whole thing to talk not just about his loss of being in fellowship with other believers, not just his loss of position and his job, if you will, not just his loss of his home and, and security and, and safety. He longed to fellowship together, as many of us do. But at the core of it, he longed more than anything else for God. We'll talk very shortly about the plans and processes and how we are going to continue to handle this season of time that we are in. I've said over and over again, we've never closed as a church, and while many are talking about reopening, that's not our conversation. Our conversation is reconvening, gathering together again, but we have continued to operate in so many different ways, and I'll talk to you about that at a future time. And as I said last week, it is so appropriate for us to have a desire for community. If we didn't, something would be wrong with us. If you don't desire to be in God's house, if you don't desire to worship with other people, to hear God's worship and praise sung by a multitude of voices, then there's something actually wrong with you spiritually. There really is. We were not designed to be alone, not just culturally and socially, but worshiping-wise. We need, I would put in small font, the community of believers. But I would put in, in the largest font, in the loudest terms possible, that we need God more. We have a desire for community. I would put in small font, and it's important, and I would bold it still. But is your desire for God, is that the most important thing in your life? Is that the thing that shouts? Is that the thing that stands in, in the largest possible font? If that is not the thing that's driving you in the midst of this time of loss, I don't understand your relationship with, with God or, or, or how you define that as Christian. We gather so that we can all bring that heart of pursuit for God that we can all gather and drink together deeply. You may be isolated. Maybe you had almost no contact at all. These individuals who are writing here, the sons of Korah, as they pursue, were pursued by Absalom's forces as they ran with David, they felt far from home and, and outside of that place. But we are in the time of Pentecost. We are in the time of the Holy Spirit. We are in the time when God's presence can be felt by any believer and recognized anywhere. We are still family. We are still connected. We are still one in the Spirit. We long, like a deer longs for water, to be able to worship together again. Desperately. And at the proper time and place, we will. And it's going, to be, it's going to be something great. But in this time of isolation, in this time 
of oppression, in this time of loss, what if God is providing a window for you and for me to dispense with all the frivolousness? We began this season unknowingly, the week before all this happened, with talking about when everything was being stripped away. And when we simply come, just wanting something to bring instead of something to take for a change. So what is God shaping in your heart, in your spirit in this season? To what degree are you pursuing him? When we do gather, what will you bring to that gathering? What new thing that God has shaped in your soul or spirit or has taught you? This could be one of the most spiritually formational time in the history of our church and of our nation and in you personally and me personally if we will just quiet ourselves enough. If we will just have the same heart as this psalmist did. To have such a thirst such a desire for God that in the midst of everything else sorting around, we take charge of our own spirit and say, why downcast? I will pursue the face of God and I will yet still have hope because all the list of things that are happening are not nearly as long as the list of all the blessings and greatness of God that as deep as I find myself in this mess right now, God's grace and his presence is deeper still. And so in that deep moment, the depths of his spirit meet with us and we collide in that moment and we find intimacy and grace and God's presence. Father, in this moment, I pray, wherever we are, I ask, Lord, that we would just pause, that we just pause, that we just pause we become aware of you. I hunger for when we can fellowship together as a body of believers. But I thirst for God. We can go without food for weeks on end, and maybe in this case it's already been several months, maybe months on end. But we can't last but a few days. We can't last but a moment without God's presence. So as much as you hunger to fellowship together, and, and that's a healthy hunger, realize that if, if you're not thirsting after God, if that's not the center of your pursuit, then this is just a social club and it will have no meaning at all. But if you seek God, seek his face, if you let that thirst drive you deeper into faith, then when the hunger of, of our not being together is finally satiated by gathering, that's going to be a really rich time. A very rich time. We'll be in touch. We'll be keeping you updated on some things very soon. In the meantime, press in. Read these two psalms together. Meditate on them. Consider them. There'll be prayer afterwards uh, by Zoom. And that should be available for you. If you want to pursue that, again, our offices are available uh, Monday through Thursday, 9 till 3 reach us on email and all the rest, okay? Father, I pray your grace upon us as a congregation. I pray wisdom and direction. I pray, Lord, that you'd direct our leaders nationally and on the state level and on the local level, God. 
And I pray, Father, that our thirst for you would be satiated in, in fellowship and deep communion with you. That would then actually engage more deeply our fellowship as a community when we're together. We commit these things into your hands in Jesus' name. Amen. Next week.